usually rely on a few trusty MBS item numbers, the ones published usually on MBS cheat sheets. But there is money to be had through the less well-known item numbers, if you know where to look. This is the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. Today we're rating the MBS for the forgotten, the hidden and the most underused MBS item numbers with Business for Doctors expert and GP Dr April Armstrong. But before we take you to that interview I did with her at the GPCE conference, we first have our VIP guest here with us, Penny, our political reporter. Hi guys. But for once, you're actually here to cover clinical news. Uh, So what got you interested in this story? Well, it's a terrible flu season, and there's been this really exciting research that's come out of the Research Centre for Infectious Diseases at the University of Adelaide. And they've been working, this team has been working under Dr. Mohamed Al-Sharifi for quite a long time on a universal flu vaccine, uh, universal for influenza A, that is, and A causes most of the disease, most years. And... um, I'm going to start with a big caveat, which is that so far, this is only in mice. I can't and believe you did a mouse study. We don't <laughs> we have a rule at the news here at the Medical Republic. <laughs> yes, here at the Medical Republic, we normally ignore the mice and wait till a study has been done in humans. But this is such a big deal if it works out that we thought we'd bring it to you anyway. And it's quite fascinating how it works. And the um, paper you shared with me, it looks like it's quite different to a lot of other universal vaccine approaches. Yes, and Flusti is our usual influenza vaccine correspondent. But this one is special in a couple of very significant ways. Uh, firstly, it's the way that they've inactivated the virus. Um, usually a virus will be inactivated, so it can't actually infect you, with either ultraviolet light or chemicals, but this team, using with the help of nuclear physicists from ANSTO, our nuclear science organisation, have actually used uh, gamma radiation to inactivate the virus. And gamma kills only the genetic material inside the virus and leaves the whole rest of the structure intact. It doesn't pull it apart like some other techniques do. And uh, for microbiological reasons that I'm not qualified to explain, this uh, produces a different kind of immune response from the seasonal vaccine. It produces a cell-mediated immune response instead of an antibody response and creates an immune memory for the next flu that might come along. Now, the second reason this work is extremely interesting is that, as all our listeners will be well aware, uh, pneumococcus is a nasty little friend that teams up with influenza and actually produces most of the mortality. And whether it's whether they're co-infections or you know the, the pneumococcus comes along secondarily and you know, opportunistically takes advantage of the immune system being distracted by the flu, uh, it's a bad outcome. So what this team has done is they've created a vaccine for pneumococcus as well, also through gamma radiation, and they have removed the capsule from the pneumococcus, which is what accounts for all the variability between serotypes. There are almost a hundred of them. And so what they've done is they've produced a vaccine that once again elicits an immune response to the part of the bug that doesn't change. And it gets even better because when you administer these two vaccines together simultaneously, you get an enhanced immune response to both. So they work separately. The flu vaccine works against the flu and the pneumococcus vaccine works against the pneumococcus. But when you combine them and deliver them together, you get a bigger immune response to both. In the process of doing all this work, they've discovered that the two pathogens don't just coincide, they actually bind together and work together to, create, to increase their pathogenicity. 
So conversely, the two irradiated versions of the bugs also bind together and they provoke a stronger immune response. And that brings me to the, the caveat on this, um, as suggested by Ian Mackay, a virologist at the University of Queensland. Uh, because we've only studied it in mice so far and seen a, you know, really impressive results, we have to know what they do, what, what, these, what this combined vaccine will do in humans. It's possible that the size of the immune response will be dangerous. So if this worked out, what would that mean in practice? Well, presumably when they've managed to cross all the regulatory hoops and brought it to market, hopefully everybody will be able to get this one shot. You no longer need to worry about any influence ever again. You no longer need to worry about a pandemic for which we wouldn't have time to produce the correct vaccine uh, before it did a huge amount of damage. And you no longer need to worry about the pneumococcus that rides on top of the influenza and causes a lot of deaths. And that pneumococcus, that secondary infection, is why a lot of GPs find themselves prescribing antibiotics for flu, because you never know when that isn't going to turn into bacterial pneumonia. So we'll be also sparing a whole lot of antibiotics, which is a good thing. Yeah, that's brilliant. They've only worked on influenza A so far. I don't know why it wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to apply the same logic to influenza B. That's super fascinating. It would be amazing if Australians were the ones to solve this problem. Um, but, I mean, there are so many research groups around the world who've been working on this for decades. Some of them have their flu vaccine, their universal flu vaccine, in clinical trials in humans at the moment. Um, and even then, they're not 100% sure it's going to work. So it really would be um, the holy grail. And it's such a hard problem to solve. So good luck to them. <laughs> it is. And we'll just have to watch and wait. This week's hot topic is from Dr. Joe Kosterich, a GP based in Perth. Up until the early 1980s, we didn't have the sorts of problems with uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes that we see today. And a major change was made in the early 1980s and people were advised, and this is not just in Australia, but worldwide, to go to a low-fat diet. And when you look at the data, it shows that rates of obesity were fairly much a flat line up until that point. And there's an inflection and all of a sudden it's uphill all the way and we're continuing to see that today. And if you go back to human physiology, it really does make a lot of sense. When we eat a lot of uh, carbs and particularly grains and processed carbohydrates, the body produces insulin. Insulin is designed to get sugar and glucose out of the bloodstream and it does that by storing it as fat. So the body goes into fat storage mode when we're on this low-fat diet. Keeping in mind also that when you take the fat out of foods, you have to put something else in and people put sugar in. So a lot of blame goes to food manufacturers. The only reason food manufacturers started making low-fat foods is that there was public demand. That public demand was brought about by aspects of what I described as big public health that told everybody to eat low-fat. But the public dutifully did this and we see the results around their waste. Now, we know from international work um, that going onto a low-carb type diet can be quite successful and sustainable in, uh, in reducing obesity. Now, not everybody is going to get a fantastic result, of course not, but what people find is they don't get hungry, which means they don't tend to go to munchies. And going back to the sorts of foods and the sort of diet that humans ate up until the early 80s, the tragic part in all of this is that these, uh, this low-carb type approach, which has shown to be very successful in a lot of people, continues to not only be not supported by the powers that be, 
but in fact people even are attacked for suggesting this. The simplest tip is shop around the outside of the supermarket. Um, and once you get a little bit into the swing of it, 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 it isn't that hard. Um, Michael Pollan, who's an American food writer, says, you know, eat foods that your great-great-grandparents would recognise as foods. So somebody who was in the 1920s or 30s who came back today, you took them to the supermarket, they'd recognise a carrot, they'd recognise a steak, they probably wouldn't recognise a muesli bar. Passionate about the potential of technology, but frustrated by its complexity and untapped potential in primary care? Wild Health is a one-day summit happening in Sydney on the 25th of June that brings together healthcare professionals and informatic experts in order to tackle the biggest issues facing digital health. This is your chance to hear from and question Australia's thought leaders, innovation mavericks, key decision makers and contrarians from inside the digital health sector and beyond. Participate in a day of engaging, meaningful debate and discussion, along with some great networking opportunities over cocktails and canopies. At Wild Health, you'll hear from the directors and leaders of GP software patient management systems, like Best Practice and MediRecords, as well as the heads of major tech bodies like the Medical Software Industry Association's Emma Hossack, and Telstra eHealth Managing Director, Professor Mary Foley. We'll also be joined by primary policymakers from the Australian Digital Health Agency, like Bettina McMahon, and eHealth New South Wales, Dr. Zoran Bolovic. Check out our full agenda and get your ticket at wildhealth.net.au. Wild Health, because innovation can't be tamed. On today's program we have Dr April Armstrong, she is from Business for Doctors and she is basically the bible on the MBS and how you learn which item numbers you should be billing, uh, which ones are being used incorrectly and how we can all become better in our practice and our billing habits. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So firstly, what are GPs doing wrong with the MBS at the moment? I'm sure that you can list a million things. Well, not quite a million things, but most of them don't have any understanding of the basics of the MBS and they've not read the most important part of the Medicare benefit schedule, which is the explanatory notes at the very beginning of the MBS, which is the overriding rules for every doctor who uses the Medicare benefit schedule. So there are eight sections, I believe, of the MBS, which are the most important 
the must-reads for GPs? So there's eight categories in the MBS, but you need to read the general explanatory notes first, which is essentially a massive category on its own. Then category one is your professional attendance item numbers for general practice. Um, it's really important to read this because this contains item numbers like 3, 23, 36, 44, all your mental health item numbers, all your chronic disease management, your cycle of care. So these are the things that make up the crux of professional attendances in general practice. So about 70% of the billings in general practice come from category one. It's also the category that's subject to the 80-20 rule, so understanding that so you don't breach Medicare is really important. The other um, categories that we look at are category two, three and eight. So two is where you've got some investigations like your ABIs, ECGs and your spirometry numbers and the spirometry numbers recently changed, so understanding those. Category three is the second most um, important section of the MBS for GPs. It's actually the therapeutic procedures section. It includes all the procedures that you do in your consult room or in your treatment room that isn't an investigation. So your implanons, your marinas, your skin cancers, your hematoma management, your wedge resections, your fracture management, as well as your antenatal care item numbers. Category A is the miscellaneous section and that includes your bulk billing incentives and numbers for your midwives and your nurse practitioners. Really important when you're wanting to maximise the returns for the practice by using those item numbers correctly. And what are the, some of the most common things that GPs might be billing at the moment and how can they improve their billing habits so that they can be getting the most out of their consult? So the most common item number that is billed is a, is a 23 and we know the, the number of items that are, are billed each year are documented through Medicare. We know that a number of the 23s are not documented correctly. So although GPs are usually doing the content and the consult correctly, they're non-compliant with Medicare because of incorrect documentation. So utilising the item numbers and billing them correctly is the first thing and understanding the rules that surround them. So one of the most common things that GPs do is they often default to time-based consultations when they shouldn't. So a time-based consultation should only be used when no other item number applies. So you can't change an antenatal consult, a 16500, to a 36 or a 44 if the time goes over 20 or 40 minutes. And the same applies to a mental health consultation. If you do a mental health consultation and it goes over 20 minutes or over 40 minutes, you can't then revert that to a time-based consult. And there's also a few item numbers that GPs should be aware of. One that you mentioned in your presentation here at the GPCE today was when you're dealing with more than one patient in the consulting room. What should GPs know about that? So there's a couple of things that you can use as a general practitioner when you have more than one patient. So there's what we call initial group therapy or focused psychological strategies. You do need to have additional training for that. Those item numbers are available to doctors who have had that training and FPS allows you to get people together who've had a mental health uh, plan done. Up to five consultations initially can have up to 10 um, through a 12 month period. And you can actually group them together and each patient who comes in to that group therapy, there's an item number to bill for each of them. So that maximizes the return on your money and it maximizes the return to patients in a group session. 
The other group therapy is what we call family therapy. I think you might have been talking about that. This item number is underutilised and often GPs are spending an hour, an hour and a half with family members, especially for children who have behavioural problems or mental health issues and their family dynamics are falling apart. If you have two family members and you're doing family therapy, there's an item number for two, there's an item number for three and there's an item number for four or more. The consultation needs to go for at least one hour, but it's an opportunity to really maximise the MBS rebates for your patient. And the other one that I think we mentioned today was the cancer case conference, a minimum of 10 um, minutes with um, three health professionals. Um, I've used this previously in consultation uh, with pa patients for patients with breast cancer. The consultations are often done by GPs, but they're not billed. So this item number should be looked at by general practitioners to see whether their patients are eligible for a rebate. The patient doesn't need to be present for that case conference, but they do need to give consent prior to the case conference occurring. So just rewinding just a minute ago when you were talking about a family consult, can you clarify who is the patient that you're making the notes on in that situation? So the patients need to be present, so whoever you're dealing with on the day. So let's say the patient with the problem is a child, but mum and dad are coming into the consultation. You choose mum or dad and you document extensively in one of their notes and that's the patient who the item number would be billed through. But you also would need to make a note in the other person who's in attendance of them being there for that family therapy. If the patient who was the primary patient was present, I would generally put the notes in their name. So if there's three people there, mum, dad and child, and it's primarily about the child, then I would document that in the child's notes. And then if the mum and dad leave the consult room, you then also have the option to bill again, isn't it? If you see the child after that. That's correct. So the, once the family therapy has been completed, let's say you spend an hour and 10 minutes with the entire family, and then the uh, adolescent child wants to spend some time with you regarding another issue or some other problems that might be going on that isn't family therapy, then that would then start as a time-based consult once your family therapy consult had been completed. You would need to document that very carefully in your notes, and I would normally say to timestamp or at least put the time Time that you start the second consult on the same presentation. So one of the major problems of why doctors are having to give money back to Medicare is often because their notes don't match the item number that they've billed for. Is there a cheat sheet or a way to make sure that your notes are thorough for the right item number that you're billing? Wow, that's a, that's a tough one. Not, not really so much a cheat sheet to make sure that you're billing the correct item number because the item number has a lot of components to it. A lot of the time it has um, time, complexity, the diagnosis of the patient, the qualifications of the practitioner who's undertaking the consultation, the location of the consultation, um, the time of the day of the consultation. So there's no easy way to get around it. People just need to read the Medicare benefit schedule. There are cheat sheets and we've got a cheat sheet that we're, we're providing for, for practitioners that have the uncommon item numbers. But essentially what doctors need to do is to get in there and read the rules of the MBS and make sure that their documentation and notations meet the minimum criteria of the item numbers they're billing. And you were also talking a little bit in your presentation of how there's some transcription services that you can use to make that process a little bit easier. That what are some of those that you have used? Yeah, so I did the first pilot project for Scribe Australia, which means I had a virtual 
scribe, she was on an iPad, lovely girl who was from Florida, and she literally sat inside my consult as a secretary and did all my medical documentation, my referrals, my pathology forms, while I did the face-to-face touchy-feely things with the patients. The examinations were verbalised so she could document the findings on the examination, and I would always then go back and verify that the documents, the documentation that she had provided was, was correct. Um, that program um, is called Scribe Australia and uh, p- people can contact Scribe Australia saying they've been referred from Business for Doctors and they get a special deal. And the great thing about that is the notes are Medicare compliant. My scribe actually started to learn the MBS as well so you can get your scribe learning how to, how to do the um, documentation in a format that it meets the MBS criteria. And one of the biggest downfalls of course is, is the doctors not putting in enough detail. So these are really detailed notes and really good referrals as well. The other service is a re- relatively new service that's been introduced by HealthShare and um, it's called Better Consult. And I really like this idea. This is when the patient in the comfort of their own home can fill out a online um, questionnaire about why they're going to the doctor. And when you open the patient's notes on the day of the consultation before you bring the patient into the consult room it's got an overview of what the patient's coming in for as well as some intimate details about the patient's history smoking drugs alcohol and some family history that helps you populate your your notes this really helps in relation to time-based consults and actually gives you the heads up about what's going on in the consultation from a medicare compliance point of view it's awesome it actually completes that history part of the mbs that is so poorly done by some doctors. So the shared debt recovery program is on the horizon and why does that matter for GPs in this area? So especially for practice owners and private practice owners, the Shared Debt Recovery Program is essentially legislation that requires the practitioners and the practices to be proportionally responsible for Medicare debt raised for non-compliance. If the practice has received 30 or 40% of the Medicare billings, if a debt's raised against a practitioner, that could leave them liable for that 30 or 40% of the debt. What it's doing is it's essentially putting practices in a position where they need to be auditing internally and giving Medicare education to the practitioners and then talking to the practitioners about their billing styles and making sure that they're compliant so their businesses stay viable. So some GPs now might be wondering what they can do to study up on the MBS. What would you suggest? So I think the first and most important thing is to join a community of like-minded people. So for free, they can join our Facebook page, which is uh, Business for Doctors. And you'll need to provide some details because it is a closed group for doctors. If you're a business owner, you can join Business for Practice Owners as well. And we would encourage all the doctors to have their practice managers join the Business for Practice Managers page. And we talk about lots of MBS things in there. If you're looking at doing things more of a self-directed learning, there's lots of opportunities to look on the MBS website and use the health um, information that's there. Some people find the MBS online quite difficult to use and we've got permission um, from the government to print an MBS specific item number book and sell that for cost price to general practitioners which they can buy online as well. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us on the Medical Republic today. Thank you. So now it's time for our quirky historical fact. Francine, have you got something for us today? I sure do. Treadmills, they really are torture. 
No, seriously, they are. In the year 1818 in England, a civil engineer called William Cobbett invented what would later be identified as the first treadmill. Except back then, he called it a treadwheel, and it definitely was not for fitness. Instead, it was designed to maximise prison labour in the Victorian era. So prisoners would step onto this treadwheel and continuously would climb and climb as the gears went around and round, and the movement was pumping water, which in turn was crushing grain. It was used in over 44 prisons across England at the time. Even Oscar Wilde, the famous author, when he was imprisoned for indecency, he had to go on the treadwheel every day for six months. The contraption became known as the Endless Staircase. One prisoner even wrote his account of being on the treadwheel. I have worked for months on the wheel. I was quite well in coming in. I now have a great pain in the back part of my legs, my loin and my left side. I get weaker every day. I can hardly stand upright. I know not how I shall be able to do a day's work. Eventually, the treadwheel was deemed too cruel, thank God, and its use in prison came to an end in 1898 under the Prisons Act. But it wasn't the end of it. It wasn't long before the first commercial patent was filed in 1913, and this is the dawn of the modern treadmill. So next time you're at the gym working out, just be thankful that you have the free will to stop whenever you like. That's torture entirely by your choice. Okay, so it's been a busy program between hearing about the latest in flu research and how to look through the MVS properly. It's kind of a lot to digest. Sorry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) But before we go, we just want to bring you some of the latest feedback that we've had about the podcast. So this was a tweet by at Dr. J. Sani, and he said, a rant and a rave podcast, brilliant idea. This could be very therapeutic. Um, And there he's talking about our hot topic section. Um, And if you want to help us out, please get in touch. Uh, We'd love to hear your rants or your controversial theories or ideas. Yeah, and speaking of which, our Hot Topic host from last week at Nurse Robbie, he tweeted, he said he was excited to be featured on our latest episode of The Medical Republic. He said he enjoyed having a small rant about increased LGBTQI sensitivity in our clinical spaces. And he said, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I'm sure it's not the last that we've heard from some of our Hot Topic speakers. Many of them, I'm sure, will be back on the program soon. I think a lot of them have you know a rant every day that they could give us (laughs) yeah and which we'd love to hear next time felicity's heading to the ama conference who are you meeting there so i'm going to be interviewing professor michael myers as in the guy who voiced shrek uh look maybe i'll have to ask him (laughs) i don't think so he's a psychiatrist flying in from new york um and he's going to fill me in on how doctors can take care of themselves when there are lots of structural barriers to well-being Looking forward to it. Catch you next time.